for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know, $500,000 to in debt. $192 million. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host, John Warlow. Hey, it's John Warlow. I wanted to record this quick message to let you know that I've got a new book that's now available called The Art of Selling Your Business. And really, it's a distillation of some of the best practices I've heard from some of the smartest entrepreneurs I've interviewed for this show. You know, having done now more than 300 plus interviews for Built to Sell Radio, I've seen that there's this small group of founders who seem to really have incredible exits, ones where they make life-changing money from the sale of their company. And what I've tried to do is really analyze what are the transferable lessons among that small cadre of winning exits. I've put those into an action plan, a bit of a, a just add water recipe card for punching above your weight when it comes to selling your business. The book is called The Art of Selling Your Business. It's available anywhere you buy books. You know, running a service company can be a tricky thing. On one hand, it's easy to start, doesn't require a lot of capital, but it's also tough to sell because a service company, of course, the primary assets are the people. As David Ogilvy said, they go up and down the elevator every night. How do you transfer a business where there really is no assets? There's no IP. That makes my next guest story all that more interesting. Pete Martin started a company called Entry Point and sold it to KPMG for fully 12 times EBITDA. Perhaps even more interesting is that came without an earnout. How did he do it? Well, he's about to tell you. Number one thing he did was pull himself out of his business. He'll give you some strategies for how to do that. He negotiated with the vice chairman of KPMG, and he'll tell you how he convinced him to buy his business without an earnout. He'll talk about how do you ensure that a competitor doesn't use the veil of an acquisition in order to steal your employees and much, much more. Here to tell you his entire story is Pete Martin. Pete Martin, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Hey, John, how are you doing, man? It's great to be I'm on good. The show. Yeah, Entry Point Consulting. I got to confess, I saw the press release and I'm like, I have, I don't have a clue what this guy did. <laughs> so you got to explain <laughs> it to me. It was consulting. I know what that is, but what kind of consulting did you do? Yeah, so uh, we were in a partner with SAP, which is a large German software company. And so we did all kinds of different services around implementing the software in typically big companies. Um, and what we're going to talk about today is... Um, our largest practice by far is 85% of the revenues had to do with servicing customers that um, did import export. So if you're exporting goods, you have to make sure you're not shipping stuff to people that you shouldn't ship to. You have to follow all of the rules that the U S department puts in place. And so really it was, it was all around import and export uh, specifically around uh, implementing SAP in that particular set of modules. I've heard of SAP. I've heard of SAP, but I don't know anything about it. So it's a software that big companies use to 
to do what exactly? What, 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 how do big companies use SAP? So the old term was enterprise resource planning. It's basically business management software. Um, SAP, interestingly enough, is the third largest software company in the world that very few people have ever heard of unless you come from a big company. So it's it's a single piece of software that literally runs every facet of a company from sales, distribution, purchasing, materials management, manufacturing, and it ties it all into kind of a single piece of software. So if I'm like a Procter & Gamble and I want to make sure the Crest toothpaste shows up at the Kroger's and they get billed for it at the right day, that's, you would use SAP in the background to make all that sort of that stuff happen? Right. Yep. Okay. Got it. And so you... So like if someone like a Procter & Gamble would hire you to implement SAP software or to, to basically consult on its implementation. Is that right? Yeah. I'll kind of give you a, uh, an example. So we sold SAP, the software, to Coca-Cola. And we sold the software itself was $100 million. And wow. the implementation, the installation of the software across all their divisions. Now think about how big Coke is, right? There are 170 countries, whatever. Um, the implementation was estimated to be 400 million. I think when all said and done, it'll probably be close to a billion dollars by the time they, they implement it across all their sites. But it, it literally runs companies, which is, it was a very cool thing because you really kind of get deep into how companies operate at the, at the, at the most fundamental level. And why wouldn't SAP, why would they rely on independent consultants like you, why wouldn't they just do it themselves? Like these, these are big deals. Yeah. Good question. Because, um, it was all about building a platform and an ecosystem and they were able to grow. Um, they, they really got their, a lot of their growth came from the nineties when this guy, Michael Hammer wrote reengineering a corporation. And, um, they basically said, let's go to Accenture and Deloitte and KPMG and entry point and have them, you know, uh, implement our software. And so they didn't have to scale up all these consultants around the world, right? They got instant scale. Uh, software is infinitely scalable. So they grew unbelievably in the, in the nineties and beyond because of that. It was a smart strategy. And as did you, you got the business up to like 30, 30 people or so before yep. you decided to sell. Is that right? Yep. That's exactly right. So we, and so it's, uh, so help me understand, um, how you thought about, your dependency on SAP. One of the things we talk about a lot is this idea of the Switzerland structure where you can't be too dependent on any one customer, supplier, partner, etc. As you grew, did how, how did you reconcile the fact that man, a lot of our like we're we're becoming pretty dependent on SAP? Did you think about that? Were you were you guys sort of worried no, about that? No, it's a little bit of a different dependency. So um we got uh, in the beginning, for the first couple of years, we got virtually no business from SAP. Uh, we had to go find our own business. Um, and so from a partnering perspective, we were, we were technologists implementing their stuff. And so we weren't really relying on SAP per se. You know, the, 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 the flip side of it, Ben, could have been if they go to their customers and say, hey, these guys suck, right? Then we're, we're in a big hurt. Um, but in terms of kind of relying on them to grow the business, we weren't as much as you normally would in a supplier kind of relationship like that. And that's a fairly common thing that the, the big consulting firms in the world all have these, you know, $100 million, billion dollar practices around all of the big software companies from Oracle to SAP to Microsoft to whatever. So. That's helpful. And so your, your 30 employees, give me a sense of the revenue. Is it like time and materials or project-based? Like how, how do you bill for what you, yeah, what you offer? Um, so when we started out, it was pretty much time and materials for most of those folks. Um, it 
pretty healthy uh, bill rates. And then as we really got our processes down and could figure out exactly about how long a particular project would take, we did some fixed price, um, you know, less kind of time and materials based, but more project based type of offerings. And then 18 months before we decided to, to sell the company, we really started to move into um, some recurring revenue type of service offerings where we could chunk out a piece of an implementation. We knew exactly what it would take to implement. Um, we built some intellectual property around it, and then we would just go fix price that as a product. And that ended up being 25, 30% of our revenues in the end. Amazing. So help me decode that. So 18 months before selling, you started to, to create some recurring revenue. What was the offering there? Can you be a bit more specific about what 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 yeah. was a recurring offering? Yeah, it's gonna. This will get a little technical for a second. So, um, uh, the ba basically, the federal government says you cannot sell anything that could be used as a weapon, both software and hardware, to people that they deem as what they call sanctioned parties. So the bad guys, right? You can't sell it to Syria. You can't sell it to Iran. You can't sell it to Saddam, Saddam Hussein. And they force companies to literally screen every one of their customers as the orders are going out to make sure you're not shipping to somebody. And there's this fuzzy logic. So if there's a John Warlow with J-O-N uh, versus J-O-H-N, we can kind of, through the SAP software, we can kind of filter out if you're a good guy or a bad guy, okay? Um, and so that we created a standard offering around that. It's called sanctioned party screening, where we could deliver that to a company that every single order that went through their system. And you know, in the case of like a Citrix, Citrix is selling, they've got, I don't know, 50 to 100,000 orders a day. Every single one of those customers has to be screened. So we could we bundled that up into an offering and called section party screening. And then we could just ship that to a company and we knew exactly what it would take to put that in and incredibly profitable. It's, it's, I bet. That's super helpful. When you say ship it, do, do you physically mean like there's a box? I, I would assume it was a sort of a cloud-based or like, what, what, or is it on-premise software? What was it? It's 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 on-premise or cloud-based software. And so the the um, the delivery of it was the implementation of it. So it's literally configured code. So SAP is a software that runs 26 different industries. It runs most of the Fortune 1000 companies in the world, but you have to configure it specifically for that business. So we had some, uh, we knew how to kind of manipulate the levers, if you will, um, to be able to go in and configure that software very quickly for that particular company in their industry and their business. Were you ever tempted to go all in on sanction party screening and, and get out of the consulting business and just, just focus on this piece? Yeah, that's a good question. It was, it was, um, it was kind of later. I mean, we had kind of, gotten into that um, pretty close to when we were going to uh, exit the business. Um, the, our, our concern about kind of going all in on just that was the, we think we limited the number of customers that we could go after. So, but that was the classic entrepreneurial appeal of, you know, oh my God, if we just go down this one path, you know, we give up all of this other business. And even though it was more profitable from a revenue perspective, it was significantly less than the other ones. And so, we used it for both a service offering that made us money and, and we could heavily discount it. We, we would make it um, essentially what we call a ramp offering, an on-ramp, right? So come in and do a sanctioned party screening for this amount of money. And we know we'd find all of these other issues when we got in there and then we could go upsell from there. That's awesome. Thin edge of the wedge, as they say. Love exactly. it. Yep. Love it. Who's the who's the we, Pete? Like, were there other shareholders or I know you had 30 or so employees. 
Yeah, so um, I started this company with a guy that, um, so so prior to starting up this company, I used to work for SAP and executive management for many years. And hmm. I was on the other side of the table where we then had business partners. And so one of our business partners, I got to know them fairly well. So when I left SAP, he and I started up this firm. So he was kind of the early money guy. Um, and then we built this thing together. And then at the height of 2008, before the financial crisis, um, and this was supposed to just be his second bite of the apple. He wasn't quite ready to retire, kind of wanted to stay busy for a while. So I bought him out in uh, 2008. Um, he got a return of 14 times his money. So he was a very happy guy. <laughs> Unfortunately, at 2008, when the economy was really strong, our business was crushing it. So he got about the maximum valuation he was ever going to get. So he's a happy guy. Um, so then he bought him out in 2008 and then I just ran the company kind of on my own after that. So I was a sole shareholder at that point. What did you pay on a multiple of earnings to buy him out? Oh gosh. At the time, um, <clears throat> it was nine, nine or 10 times earnings at that point. Uh, we had to do all kinds of math cause he owned 55%. I owned 45 and then we did, three levels of valuation and we kind of averaged those valuations. We did DCF, we did EBITDA multiple, and then we did a uh, kind of a revenue multiple and smashed all those together, took the average and <clears throat> paid him out on that. Got it. And how did you come up with the money to pay him? Uh, I would imagine that's a, that's a significant chunk of change. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> we gave him a pretty big downstroke. Um, and that being a, a cash payment up front. That's correct. Sorry. Yep. And then we paid him out over another two years or three years, he just kind of agreed to a payment in on a, on a reasonable interest rate and we paid him out over time. And what would have happened had you reneged on that payment schedule or been unable to, to pay that off? Um, I think he would have been very kind and said, what's going on here, man? Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, but I guess yeah. legally what would have happened? I'm sure he would have been a good guy about it, but I mean, like, was there some sort of recourse that he had? Yeah, it, it wasn't super harsh. It wasn't something where he takes back all of his shares. Um, I think we treated it as a normal promissory note. So there wasn't a recourse in terms of giving back shares or clawback or anything else. It was a, hey, I have the right to then go legally, you know, go after you guys for my money. Um, and we did that because we gave him a, a large enough down payment of cash um, that you know he was he was pretty happy with the deal. So. What what gave you the confidence? I've often been curious about this because it's so counterintuitive. You start a company it, it, oftentimes with little cash, and then all of a sudden the business says, "Oh, we're, we need you to write a massive check." <laughs> And I, I don't know that I'd had the stomach for it. How, how did you, like, what gave you the confidence to say, yeah, I'm going to write a check with a lot of zeros on it to buy out my partner? You know, the, the, the 18 to 24 months before we did this deal with the partner, we were growing um, 50% a year, 50 to 100% a year. Um, you know, obviously we never saw 2009 kind of coming. Um, and so, we had a lot of faith that the business was going to continue to grow and it was generating a lot of cash. So we had the full confidence at that point in time that, uh, you know, the, the forecast looked good, the runway looked good, the cash flow looked good, and it just made sense at that point. Would we How bad did it? Now, knowing what we know, probably not. Right? Why? What happened? Um, just because then the, the financial uh, crisis, right, took out. We had, we had a customer that we'd implemented their business system in uh, October of that year. And we went live and a couple of weeks later, um, 
the uh, CEO calls me up and he said, this thing is all screwed up. All the numbers are wrong. We're like, what are you talking about? So we sent a team of half a dozen guys and we're literally running the numbers on spreadsheets. And we're like, we've got good news and bad news. The good news is the system's working perfectly. The numbers are right. <laughs> bad news is your numbers are down by 35, 40%, right? And oh, that literally man. was the very beginning of the recession that we went into at that point. So, And what impact did that recession have on your company? In yes. terms of, yeah, yeah we, we lost, uh, we, our, our pipeline disappeared pretty much. We lost about 35% of our revenue um, and we got through it without laying off a single employee. But I can tell you that was, uh, there were weeks where, you know, I'm lying awake just saying, I hope to God this check comes in from this customer so we can make payroll. Did your former partner have to wait on any of his checks? No, we, we kind of gave him a heads up and said, hey, we may miss some checks uh, or we may, we, we may not miss any checks, but we may be late. Um, are you okay with that? You know, and he's like, yeah, considering the economic environment, uh, I, I get it. Um, and you know, I, I'm, I'm here to support you. Well, it was good of him. Uh, yeah. it, but presumably the business did, did turn around because, because at some point you decided to sell. What was the trigger? You mentioned 18 months. What was the trigger that made you think, okay, now I want to, I want to get on my front foot and start preparing this business to sell. Yeah, it wasn't a uh, it wasn't a financial thing. It was, um, I mean, honestly, I was bored, um, and we had um, we were bored from a couple of perspectives. Um, I I really developed the leadership team to be able to step up. So a lot of the stuff that I was doing in the past, they were now taking over, which was a great thing. So I had kind of less things to do, um, and I'm you know your typical. This is this is my um, uh, fourth business, and so um, I. I wasn't finding enough stuff to do. So I was kind of getting bored. And I'm like, you know what? I might as well monetize this thing if I can, right? Um, so that kind of got me thinking about it. And, and it wasn't, it wasn't, hey, Pete wants this payoff. It was, if I'm, I, I know myself, if I'm bored, I, I'm not a good leader. I'm not a good employee. I'm not a good performer. And so I could kind of see that going because that had happened a couple of times in my career and just said, all right, it's time to, time to jettison this thing. So what did you do next? So I, I spent probably two days kind of by myself just in a conference room. In fact, I think I went to, I spent two days in a Panera or something, just kind of writing down. <laughs> Who's the dude loitering with the <laughs> notebook <laughs> with the really cold coffee beside him? And we think we saw him last night. We think we were sleeping <laughs> there all night. Um, so I just kind of said, you know, what, what does Pete want to do? And what do I think this is worth? And how could I maximize the value of this thing? Right. And um, I had sold three businesses, started and sold three businesses before that, smaller businesses. And I, I won't say I screwed up every, every exit, but I, I knew kind of what to do. I, I kind of went through the school of hard knocks and said, all right, I got to completely pull myself out of the business and have these guys step up. I need to create some recurring revenue streams. I need to make sure we have a nice, um, you know, uh, uh, profit profitability that looks like it's a nice curve, right? We need to continue to build the business. We need to make sure... Um, we have loyal customers. Uh, you know, there's this concept called the net promoter score. And we had been running net promoter score for five. We, we started probably two years after the book came out. Um, the book so, being Fred Reichelds, the yeah, loyalty yeah. effect or exactly. the one number you need, et cetera. Yeah. Yep. You got it. So, you know, so we could, we had this, you know, beautiful trajectory of cash flow, of growth, of NPS uh, scores and everything else. And so, I said, what else do I need to do? And it really was down to recurring revenue and removing Pete from the business. Direct. Got it. What was your NPS score in those days? Uh, we got it up to it's like 58 or 60. 
Unbelievable. So, and for service, Unbelievable. And for, amazing. That's incredible. I mean, for folks listening, you know, average net promoter score for companies across the US is around 15, 10 to 15%. Uh, it varies by industry, but anything north of 50%, you're kind of in, in world-class territory along with sort of Amazon, Google, Harley-Davidson, USAA. So 58 is just like stunning. That's incredible. Um, I'd love to dig into a theme that's near and dear to my heart, meaning how did you pull Pete out of the business? So like what, what sort of, I mean, I think people, by the way, have heard that, like they kind of get, Oh, I got to pull myself out of the business. Uh, but then it gets a bit murky. Like how, how do I, like, what do I specifically need to do to, to get myself out? Cause I mean, in a consulting business, oftentimes the partners, the head, you know, they're, they're involved right up, you know, serving clients, winning, winning business. Absolutely. So, um, and that's very much the case kind of up to that point. And I'll kind of give you a, a, kind of tell you a little bit about the deal structure and then I'll kind of go back and talk about that. Sure. So as we are going through the due diligence process, right. And you can imagine, uh, KPMG fourth largest auditing firm in the world that the due diligence that they went through was just brutal. Um, but we kind of came out on the other side of that, which was great. And so we had a, a business sponsor within KPMG that wanted to get this deal done. And as we're going through this process, the deal kind of got stuck. Um, there was about a month to month and a half where there was very little activity coming from them. And so I called up this business sponsor and I said, you know, hey, I can just tell something's stuck. What, what's up? And he's like, you know, I'm, I'm not really sure. Um, and I said, well, let me go talk to your boss's boss, who was the vice chairman of KPMG. And he's like, you know, I talked to the vice chairman of KPMG. What are you kidding me? I'm like, give me a meeting and I'll get the deal unstuck. Just give me half an hour with this guy. So he's, like, he's got nothing to lose, right? So he's like, all right, cool. <clears throat> so I get this meeting, fly out to New York, and I meet with this guy, uh, uh, Jeff LeSage, who is the vice chairman. And I said, Jeff, you know, it seems like you guys want to get the deal done. Deal seems to be stuck. What's up, right? And he said, Pete, we've never bought a company where the CEO and the owner and founder didn't go with the deal. So I'm being told you're not going with the deal. What's up, right? And so I said, basically two things. And then I'll kind of go back to how this happened. I said, the one thing is I'm an entrepreneur. This is my fourth company. You know, I, yes, I've worked for big companies, whatever. I, I would make a really crappy employee. You don't want me as an employee because <laughs> I'm pretty independently minded, right? And I said, the second thing is, I said, if you look at our book of business from the last 12 months and you look at the relationships that our customers have, I said... I can tell you who we signed because I'm the, I'm the co-signer on the contract. But I said, I can't tell you by name any of these people, none of them. Um, and I said, the, the team that you're getting are the people that you want because they have the intellectual knowledge, they have the intellectual capital, and they got the relationships with the clients. And that was it. He's like, okay, I get it. That's fine. And we got the deal done. Shook hands and you know, we closed the deal 30 days later. Amazing. So to get to that point... Um, you know, Pete, before 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 we get to that point, I just love to ask you about that meeting with Jeff. What was your mindset on the plane on the way up to New York? What was going through your mind? You know, I, I didn't know why the deal was stuck, and I was getting I was very fearful that um, my business sponsor maybe didn't have enough shtick, right? That he really wasn't the decision. I know he wasn't the decision maker. He's a big influencer, but I didn't know what had been communicated up, even though there, I mean, a team had been involved, but we were going through all the normal process that a large company would go in in acquiring a smaller company, but he didn't have the fact that he didn't know why it was stuck was very worrisome. So uh, I was 
working through mentally on the plane up, you know, every possible objection that he might have about buying the business, right? And what would be my response and how I could kind of overcome that objection. Um, and that was not the one that I expected, actually. Um, I wasn't sure what it was, but... What were you expecting? I, I, I thought it was price. I thought he had a pri- uh, an issue with either the price or the terms. Um, and the, the, the way we structured the deal was... Um, they paid 70% in cash at closing, 70% of the monies. <clears throat> there was another 10% holdback for three months. Um, what, what they wanted to do, even though a lot of our client contracts were assignable to them, they had their own contract that was KPMG specific. So they wanted every customer of ours to sign a brand new contract. And so obviously a big part of the valuation was based on that book of business coming over, right? So there was a 90-day period where they had to go re-sign every client onto a KPMG contract. So 10% of the monies were held back for that. And then we kind of had this uh, scale that said, if 90% sign, you know, this much is kind of released. If 100% sign, this much is released. And then there was another 10% held back for, um, I don't think there was some key personnel, pretty much the leadership team that if they stayed at KPMG, then I got the rest of those 10%. And then kind of the same thing. If a couple of people left, particularly the Rainmakers, then you know not all that money was released. Um, and so I thought it was around kind of those two factors, either the people, the clients, or the price itself. And, and it wasn't, fortunately. Hmm. And what was the other 10%? You mentioned 70% cash, 10 and yeah, 10. And then the final 10% was uh, what's called an indemnification holdback. So they basically stick it in an escrow account. And uh, if there's any liabilities that come up, an employee sues, a customer sues, whatever, then they have the right to reach into those funds and pay for that lawsuit from those funds. Um, and that was over the course of a year. So after a year, those monies were released. Got it. Okay. Let's now rewind. Yep. Uh, to what you so this is super helpful. So what you did to to get the business to that point where it, it could run effectively without you? Yeah. So um, so we had a we had a model that is not unlike uh, an accounting firm or a, a, a law firm where the, the the lawyers and the accountants are doing the selling, right? And so our consultants who did the billable work also had to go out and do the selling. So there's a good part and a bad part about that. A, it's very hard to scale. And B, consultants are not salespeople. They're not professional salespeople. So they'll tell you the stuff that you don't want to hear just because that's what they do, right? And so they've killed killed sales cycles because they're telling everything, right? And so, so because of that, I always inserted myself into the sales process. I was always there saying, yeah, yeah, I know it's going to be hard, but we can get you past this. I know that this system sucks, but we're going to get you past it, right? Um, and so it took really a couple of years of really leadership professional development to get these guys over the fact to say, it's okay to tell most of the story. You don't have to tell all the story in a sales cycle, right? And it just took a long time. And so when I finally felt comfortable and, and saw the, the performance that they could go sell deals without me being involved, that was kind of the cue for me. Okay, I don't need to insert myself into every deal, right? And so- and specifically, Pete, how did you train them? Did you bring in an external trainer, send them off to Sandler sales training, or or did you personally teach them how to do that? Yeah. Uh, so fortunately, SAP had some training that we sent them through. Um, most of these guys are just brilliant people. They don't, they didn't like the training. So it really was me 
kind of taking them through a very conscientious process, just saying, you know, in a sales cycle, this is what you do. This is, this is what you say. This is what you don't say. This is how you react to this stuff. You know, put the objections on the table and let's talk about it as opposed to kind of waiting three months down the road when we're trying to get a contract and it never comes through. So it, it, it ended up, you know, I, I wanted to do professional training. It ended up just being professional training essentially from me. And Pete, where did you learn that? Did, did you learn Rackham spin selling or Xerox or what was your learning? Yeah. So I worked for IBM for seven years. So I've been through every professional sales methodology there is from spin selling, solution selling, whatever, um, through that. And then, uh, I was an executive at SAP. So I was either, you know, being trained or training others as part of that. So it was, you know, I'm a sales guy. So it was basically 14 years of truly top end, you know, fortune 500 professional sales methodologies training. Got it. So you got the the consultants to learn how to sell. You taught the, the consultants to learn how to sell yep. without sort of falling all over themselves and unselling the customer. What else did you do to get it to work without you? Yeah. And there, you know, I think a lot of the back-end processes, so they would write the contracts, they'd write the proposals, um, statements of work. Um, we ended up basically removing from that. So we kind of created these templates and then had a back office handle a lot of that stuff on their behalf which helped them just focus on selling and delivering um, and not all the other crap. Um, in addition to having some uniformity, uh, you know, we would have, uh, you know, you could pull out three different contracts, three, three statements of work and they would, they wouldn't look anything alike. Right. So it was a combination of removing myself from the sales process, front end process, and then um, putting some uniformity um, uh, around kind of the back end fulfillment execution piece of it. A lot of people I, I speak with, a lot of entrepreneurs I speak with, um, kind of theoretically know the idea of creating processes. Oh, that's a good idea. I should create processes and templates and worksheets. And yet they're, they, they kind of like the hair on the back of their neck goes up when, when they think about having to create those. Like, did you create the templates and the processes or did you get someone on your team to do it? Like, yeah, we, we created a structure as a team. We kind of spent a, a weekend in one of our, we, we had quarterly leadership retreats. And so we spent the good part of a half a day or day putting together a, a framework um, that was flexible enough that would, we could use it across clients, but was created some consistency. Um, and then we gave it to some folks on the team and just said, you know, you're, you're not going to own this. Um, you know, when I'm a, I'm a process guy, ERP, SAP is all about process optimization. So this is the way I'd been wired for gosh, 14 years or something. So I hated doing it, but I get, the value of it, right? And, and you know, the, your ability to scale much faster if you can put these processes in place. And, and you sleep it better at night as an entrepreneur and owner because you know that there are some controls in place without you having to be controlling. Got it. So you documented your processes, in particular, your sort of back-end deal, you know, templates and stuff. Yep. You got the sales, you got the consultants to sell. Is there anything else you did to pull kind of Pete out of the middle of the business? Um. No, not really. That was that was kind of enough. And in a, in a consulting business, you know, you you've only got only two two things that are going on. You've got selling and you got execution, right, and fulfillment, um, and then whatever administrative stuff. So the administrative stuff was handled. We had a good team doing that, and so it was really they just wanted to know I wasn't part of the delivery and I wasn't part of the rainmaking. And when I was fairly convinced that that was the case, then we that's when the deal started to come together. Got it. Got it. That's helpful for sure. You mentioned recurring revenue. Maybe 
maybe talk a little bit about that. The the product that you referenced earlier, the sanctioned party screening, that's the recurring revenue you created. Was that be, you, did you create that because you, you were thinking about an exit or was that something you did in advance? Yeah, it kind of it, it was very um um, it was very opportunistic in the beginning. So we had a client that came to us and said, we have a whole, in fact, we, well, we, we spun out a company kind of as a separate company as part of this. So we had a company that came to us and said, we've got this department of a dozen people, I think it was, that have that manually screen this stuff, review this stuff all the time. And they can't even keep up with all the regulatory changes. They can't, you know, there's a new database um, updated by the government every every couple of days or every time, every week, basically there's a brand new database and we just can't handle it. And we want to outsource this to, to you guys. Uh, and we're out, we're looking at HP, we're looking at IBM and we're looking at you guys. So we created a service offering around that and created a separate company that did biz, business process outsourcing specifically for that. And so then we kind of had two flavors. So if somebody wanted to literally outsource that function, we could take that on. Um, and the beautiful thing from a recurring revenue perspective is you just took a piece of their company over. It's really hard for any company to take that back over. They don't want to take it back over as long as you do a good job, right? Um, so we ended up structuring that differently and then I sold that business off. And then for the companies who, who wanted to kind of keep that in-house, that's where we created that service revenue, that, that recurring revenue stream, because that database has to be, they have to continue to screen. It never ends um, or... You know, if, if you violate these these government controls from an export perspective, um, CEO by law, CEOs are personally liable. So you can go to prison. Yeah, you're shipping stuff to Syria, right? right. So there's a case right now. Uh, the Huawei CFO is holed up in Vancouver with a bracelet around her ankle because the U.S. government has said you got to come stand for these charges. Like it's a big deal. I, I uh, I'm aware of that law. Yeah, yeah. So the when you went to sell the business, you mentioned there was roughly 25-30% of the revenue was recurring. That was derived from this product, the sanction party screening that, that we got it. So um, you're bored. You're like, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to get myself in trouble here unless I sell the company. So you made some of these changes, getting yourself out of the business. At what point did you, did you start to get more on your front foot and, and go from sort of getting it ready to sell to actually actively selling it? Yeah. So um, because I had sold three previous companies, I knew the value of getting a strategic involved in the mix, right? And um, I think deals go smoother, better, and have a higher valuation when it's a strategic that knows you, like you've actually done work together. So, um, so we approached a couple of the bigger consulting firms. We approached DY, Deloitte, KPMG, and I think there might have been one other one. Um, uh, I think it was IBM, and said, "Hey, you know, we we have excess capacity. We are frankly the best in the world at doing this. Let's go figure out a way if we can partner." Um, and KPMG bid, and so we actually went to the point of we actually jointly bid on a couple projects, and um, we did that on purpose because we wanted them to kind of know how we worked. And um, you talk about in your new book about this concept of telling a story. And so the story that we approached all these guys with was, uh, particularly KPMG, is we said, look, you guys are out there advising clients on what to do. Um, okay. And so their bill rates are super high, but the, the engagements are very short. We're actually then go delivering the work. So you're telling a client they should do X, Y, and Z. We actually go do X, Y, and Z. And so our projects are about five times longer 
than your engagement. And so what if you could do it all? What if you could say you should do X, Y, and Z, and now we'll actually put in X, Y, and Z, right? And so um, so that was kind of the pitch. And so we uh, jointly bid on, I think, two or three clients, um, ended up not getting the work for two of the three. Uh, the third one we did. But what came out of it is they're, you know, they could actually now see the numbers. They could see that the piece that they were doing was whatever, you know, $10. And the piece we were getting was $30. And so even the, even though the, the bill rates were different or were lower, the projects were significantly larger, right? So that <laughs> then became the story. And when you went to approach Deloitte and KPMG and IBM uh, to, quote, partner with them, did you in your mind know that you wanted them to acquire you? Yeah, absolutely. That's how we did it. <laughs> did they know? Um, I think the, the guys at KPMG did. We had had some, you know, kind of uh, at the bar conversations about, hey, what if, would you be interested? How are you growing your practice? What this, what's this thing look like in three years? And so um, theirs was by far the best fit. Um, Deloitte already had kind of a competitive offering. I'm a former IBMer, but you could just tell they kind of couldn't get it out of their own way. And it just, it just made sense. It was a perfect strategic fit for what they were doing. Um, and so, um, so after we kind of got that, feeling for where they were at. That's when I said, you know, Hey, let's go partner on a couple of deals and see what this thing looks like. Um, with, with that kind of in the mind of if this goes really well, you know, they're naturally going to go, Hey, you know, we're giving away all this revenue to these guys and we brought them into our client. Why don't we just bring them into the mix? Right. And that's exactly how it happened. Interesting. So who made the first move? Um, I, we did, we did. What did you, what did you do? Um, from the acquisition perspective? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, no, they, they, um, after we, we kind of went through this very detailed sales process with a very, very large client that we, uh, it, it, we were both kind of underdogs. Um, but we, we had both teams super engaged. We built this amazing proposal and we kind of got through that. And so as we were doing a, uh, kind of after, after review, uh, after deal review, we were kind of sitting around talking and I said, uh, you know, this, this guy said, um, Hey, you know, this was great. You, know, you guys have this perfect cultural fit with what we're doing. Would you ever consider selling? I was like, Ding. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I was playing a little coy and I'm like, yeah, well, you know, I don't know. I don't know what we're going to do in the future, but yeah, we'll think about it. You know, how serious are you about it? And he said, you know, I would be super serious. And so I basically said, and, and this particular partner in his practice in KPMG had never acquired another entity. Um, and I knew that. And so um, that ended up playing in, in our favor because I literally coached this guy through the process from beginning to end, which was kind of a weird position to be in, but it worked hmm. out really well. And so I said, you know, if this is something you're generally interested in, you go talk to your M&A guys, you go talk to your chairman, and you go figure out if that's something you can actually get done and if it's of interest. And if it is, you come back to me. Um, thinking that it really wouldn't go anywhere. Uh, and then, I don't know, a month and a half, two months later, he's like, I got the green light. I'm like, green light for what? And he's like, it's Project Touchdown. I'm like, what are you talking about? And he goes, that's the project we have for acquiring our company. I'm like, all right, we're good. Pete, before, you know, around this time where you're partnering with KPMG on this deal, what did you think your company might be worth? You know, you paid your old partner nine times EBITDA. Did you figure... Did you figure nine was like you think? Did you think you could get nine for for your company? I thought we could get bigger, and I, I thought we could get more money. And the reason is, and so um, 
And again, partially because of, you know, my former business partner had bought and sold, I think seven companies. Um, this was my fourth one. And so I literally every quarter got, uh, I got analyst reports about what are the, what, or, what are the multiples by various valuation methods or different industries. And so I knew kind of in my head about where it should be. Uh, but I would like a, a small ish professional services consulting company, uh, you know, I would have expected six, seven times EBITDA. Nine sounds really high to me. So, were you were you not looking at the same benchmark? Like, was six or seven sort of what you were seeing, and nine was on the high end, or what? That is absolutely. That's right about what we saw. Um, yeah. But I I knew I, I got these guys. I went their appetite enough to know, and I helped build the the their business plan. Literally, they sold the upper management about what, how much revenue they could do. Um, and it had a massive positive impact on this guy's practice. Um, he, he more than doubled his practice um, in the first year by acquiring us. So I helped shape the story and I helped shape the valuation. And I helped shape the valuation through telling the story, right? Um, and so, and for the size that we were and the size that those guys were, I mean, honestly, I mean, between nine and 12 times EBITDA wasn't, a big deal to them, right? Because they were large enough that it was basically a rounding error. So as long as it wasn't egregious and it wasn't super unfair or completely out of the realm of, of you know, valuations, it, it really wasn't questioned. So we, we, we had their M&A guys. We went through it. Just say, Pete, tell me why you worked 12 times EBITDA. Um, and that was literally the only conversation I had. They, they had already bought into the strategic value of us joining them. Okay, so I may have messed up the order of the story there. So let me make sure I get this right. So your acquirer comes to you, and the uh, KPMG comes to you. Project touchdown. I got the green light. You think you're worth north of nine times EBITDA? At what point did you guys get into the number? Did they put a number in front of you? Was it verbal or what was the? I put a bigger number in front of them. Okay, what did you put in front of that as a multiple of earnings? I'm trying to remember. Um, I think I did. <laughs> 2x of revenue, which would have been 25 times EBITDA, I think. <laughs> Love it. They, that's kind of what they did, right? And so, so the business sponsor, he didn't know. He didn't know how to value companies. So he was like, oh, right. that's good to me, right? And so by the, by the time we kind of started working through the M&A process, when that got through to their M&A guy, he's like, uh, no, <laughs> uh, we, we need to talk about the number, right? And uh, one of the things that I always coach other business owners on is don't ever separate terms and price. Don't ever, right? So basically what I told the M&A guy was I said, let's just set the number aside. Let's work through all of the other terms, earnouts, indemnification holdbacks, you know, all of the other stuff you're going to stick into a contract, and then we'll go back and revisit the number. And if you guys are asking for stuff that's unreasonable, I'm sticking with the number. <clears throat> if you guys are putting primarily cash on the table and everything else, then, I'll, then we'll talk about the number again. And that's exactly what happened. The number didn't really get agreed to until we got the LOI from them. So, got it. So you you're 25. The M and A guy's like, not going to happen. Right. You say, well, let's talk about what terms. They're saying at that point, they're they're saying mostly cash, a little bit of holdback. No, they're 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 talking about we want a low number and we want to pay out over time and we want earnouts and we want oh. you to join the company, right? <laughs> Whatever. And because like that's the way that's how they got used to buying companies, right? Every company typically has a process and standard deal terms, and so that's I was like, well, we'll revisit all of this together, kind of a one bundle, and we're gonna kind of we're gonna weigh different things against each other. So, so he was he got it. He knew that I wasn't you know 
a uh, just a kind of a newbie. So a first time seller. So <laughs> they want a low valuation. They want to pay it over time and et cetera. Yep. So where did you go from there? Like, how did you? So your 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 counsel to other entrepreneurs listening to this is to don't don't decouple those kind of kind of like the price and the terms have to be covered. Like they're one bucket, and exactly. and you're going to screw yourself if you try to deal with them in isolation. Yep. So how did you go from we're going to pay you a crappy multiple over time, et cetera, to ultimately what you agreed to, which I think is twelve times EBITDA, which for folks listening that for a professional services firm it's almost unheard of it's a it's a it's a huge number to get 12 times ebitda um, in particular without a huge earnout so how did you go from where they were all the way up to 12 times you know i think it was um it was a level of trust the 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 business guy who was driving the deal um, just said, look, Pete, you know, we're going to have to talk about this number at some point. And I'm like, I get it. I said, but do you understand my position of wanting to combine deal terms and, and price? And he said, yes, I do. So I said, if you can trust me that we'll get to a place that works for both of us, let's just continue to move forward in the process. Let's continue to talk about terms. Let's continue to uh, ferret out the due diligence, right? They were already kind of starting that process and it was a trust thing. And so he said, I trust you, you know, don't screw me at the end here and expect that you're going to get that price because you're not. And I'm like, I get it. Just let's just kind of work through this thing together, and and it worked out great. At what point did they prepare a letter of intent? We went through. Um, we did basically uh, a letter. We did an IOI um, enough indication of interest. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, um, to get me interested enough to go start preliminary due diligence. Um, so we started showing them customer contracts, but um, did, uh, redacting all the names. Kind of the general sense of financials. We talked about. We we gave them um, a list of personnel without names and said, "Here's the skills of these people." Do you remember what the multiple they were offering in the IOI was? It like a range of we think we'd pay between X and Y. Yep, exactly. It was it a multiple of EBITDA or was it a number? It was a number. Got it. it Got it. Um, and then um, we got through enough kind of preliminary due diligence that we're like, "All right, let's let's move this to an LOI." So then we moved it to an LOI. Um, the number, <clears throat> we kept the number actually as a range now that I think about it, um, uh, in the LOI, um, you know, with some very sh- strict language that said, you know, Hey, w- we need to lock this down before we give you a definitive purchase agreement. Um, and then that, and, and it, even though it was non-binding, it was pretty well flushed out. There was more stuff in that LOI than you'd normally seen in LOI. Cause I wanted those deal terms in there. I wanted them to agree to what they were going to you know, how they're structured the rest of the deal. So then we got through the, we started a due diligence and that took four months. Uh, they wanted six or nine. I said, no, they wanted 90 days to close. Sorry. They wanted, they wanted six or nine months of d- diligence. They're an auditing firm. Right. And I'm like, oh my Guys, gosh. I said, we're not big enough. You'd have to go to each one of our houses. Right? <laughs> <laughs> like this isn't, this is insane. And so, you know, and again, it was, they had their process. They were used to buying really big companies um, and I get it. And so we just said, well, we're not them, right? We're, we're kind of this different entity. And so uh, kind of came to terms on that. They finished the due diligence a little bit early. Um, and, and again, they, they knew that I had sold before. So they weren't going to use this as a way to restructure the deal towards the end, right? Um, and while we were doing that, we said, 
send us over your, your cause we knew their contract was gonna be huge. So we said, send over your purchase agreement. I'm gonna have my attorney start to look at that. So we did that in parallel. Um, I think the ultimate purchase agreement was 155 pages. Wow. Um, yeah, with exhibits and schedules and everything else in there, uh, but it was huge. So we spent a lot of money and a lot of time with my attorney kind of going through this, but he got it to, uh, we got their counsel involved with my counsel and they kind of worked through that over the course of a couple months while we were going through due diligence. So by the time he got to the LOI, um, really, I'm sorry, uh, by the time he got to the point where we're kind of ready to close, um, it was just, a, it was basically at that point, it was a matter of, you know, talking to the key personnel to make sure they really wanted to go over to KPMG. Um, and then uh, we didn't talk to all the clients, but we talked to probably 15 of the clients and said, here's what's going on. We're selling the company. KPMG, there were two companies they couldn't take because of what they're called independence problems. So if they audit that client, they're not allowed to do consulting in that client. So we actually, and it was, we didn't change the uh, deal structure that was always kind of known from the beginning. Um, so there were two clients they could not take on after they went through their independence review and they weren't super big. So it's not a big deal. Um, and so the, the closing was fairly straightforward. It was really, you know, clients coming over and kind of personnel coming over. So, um, and that's a function of, doing a really good job crafting the agreement and doing a really good job at the due diligence process. Got it. I know I've only got a couple more minutes of time for you, but I do want to get one last question, which yeah. is how did you, um, how did you, how did you avoid KPMG stealing your consultants instead of buying your company? Cause we wrote that into the contract up front. And you say wrote that in the contract. What what do you mean by we that? We wrote that into the LOI that if we were going to release names um, and people and let them talk to folks, that they had to be a non compete. So we actually wrote that into the LOI that they agreed to. And and again, I mean, there are definitely buyers out there who will take, try to take advantage of entrepreneurs, right? Um, and so you got to be super wary. Um, and even if you put it in a contract, it doesn't mean that they don't, you know, put a job posting out there and. <laughs> your people are replying to it. Like, somehow find it somehow. Oh, yeah. Know, <laughs> yeah. You know? And so you got to yeah. be super careful, but um, I trusted these guys and they trusted me to do the right thing and and it ended up working out. So, and so you closed at, at 12 times EBITDA with no earn out. Unbelievable. Well, congratulations. I think that's incredible. Uh, <laughs> incredible. And I'm grateful for you sharing the story. Where, uh, you know, where can people find you? What are you up to? Where, what's the, where, where do, if people want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, so you know, I, I've been helping business owners for a long time, and I put a formal business around it. It's called uh, Ask My Board, um, www.askmyboard.com, and I just love sharing my story and I love helping out other people. So I do that, and um, I've actually got an online voting business that I do kind of separately. So it's uh, keeping me super busy, which is great. Awesome, and and, unfo- and fortunately or unfortunately, you've got a, a relatively uh, Common name Pete Martin, M A R T I N. So we'll put the, the link to your LinkedIn profile. In is that okay if we put that in the yeah, show yeah, notes absolutely. so people can, yeah, can my, connect my, with you on my LinkedIn? Email is pmartin, P M A R T I N, at askmyboard.com if somebody wants to direct awesome. out. So that's great. Well, Pete, it was great to have you here and I appreciate Thanks, you sharing man. the story. Congratulations on your sales. Amazing. Thanks, man. Appreciate that.
Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W. Thanks for listening.